Hi, and welcome to the Family Business Podcast. I'm your host, Russ Hayworth, and in each episode, I will discuss and explore the key challenges facing family businesses today. As a family business advisor, I'm passionate about helping families to overcome the complex and unique challenges that come from being in business together. So if what I cover in the show resonates with you, I'm here to help, and I would love to hear from you. You can get in touch with me at fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. You can also sign up to the newsletter there and receive the latest blogs, podcasts, and videos directly in your inbox. I would like to thank my friends at the Institute for Family Business for their continuing support for what I'm doing with this show. The IFB is a unique community of family businesses with common challenges, interests, values, and goals. To find out more about their work, visit ifb.org.uk. Let's get on with the show. Well, hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Family Business Podcast. We are going to be talking about trusts and their uses today, and I'm delighted to be joined by Matt Braithwaite, who is a partner in a UK-based law firm. Matt, firstly, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. And just give our audience a bit of an overview, background to your career, how you came to be doing what you're doing today. Sure. Well, as as you've alluded to, Russ, I'm a lawyer and a partner in uh, a London law firm, Wedlake Bell, and I advise UK and international individuals, families, trustees, beneficiaries and family offices on all aspects of estate and succession planning. And in, in, that, in this context, I advise on the establishment of trusts and other wealth holding structures and on the succession of family businesses uh, and family business governance. And as well as being a full-time member of the Society of Trust and State Practitioners, I'm also co-chair of the STEP Business Families uh, Special Interest Group. So as a, as a private client lawyer, I've been practicing uh, in this field for just over 15 years, which has taken me from high street private practice where I trained, moving to London, then spending uh, a couple of years working for an international accountancy practice, really sort of by t- in a sense, cutting my teeth, as it were, in issues around tax and dealing with ultra high net worth families. And with that experience coming out the other side and moving back into private practice before then moving to the role I currently enjoy. So it's a very varied role for the reasons I've, I've given, really, and that's what, what what makes it an interesting role and one where every family situation is different. Yeah, fantastic. And we are going to be talking about trust today and, in particular, their uses with regard to family business. It, it can be quite a daunting area for people to start looking into. There's... You, People may have seen in the press that there's, you know, the, this bad press around trusts and their, their uses as tax avoidance and, and various other headline grabbing um, stuff. And, and I'm sure we'll get into the detail of that as we go through the episode. But can we start off by going right the way back to basics and just explaining what a trust actually is? What are they? How do they work? That kind of stuff. Yeah, this is a really useful exercise and there's nothing more 
vexing as a private client lawyer than listening to how trusts are uh, portrayed in in the media, particularly in recent years, and and even through society, and how as we see them being used on in TV as well. So it's yeah, it's a good opportunity. This this is a good dis- discussion to have to really set the record straight. I think. So taking it back to to basics, put simply, a trust is an arrangement whereby property or assets are transferred from one person, known as the settlor to another person, the trustee, to hold that property for the benefit of a list or class of persons or entities known as the beneficiaries. So that that is a trust in a nutshell. I mean, it's worth also uh, mentioning that trusts have been around for centuries. They're not a new concept. They haven't arisen as a consequence of the desire for people to save tax there for the very reasons that I've just embodied in that example. And in fact, there are several claims that exist that the trust goes back to ancient Greece and the Roman times. However, I think it's generally regarded that trusts in the modern understanding of the term have existed since the Middle Ages, which I think I find fascinating and still continue to find fascinating now, Mm. you know, years after, you know, studying trusts at university and it's also worth bearing in mind that the origins of trust law have their roots in the distinction between the concepts of legal and equitable ownership and the moral obligations of the church of law that arose from this period in the middle ages and the time of the crusades where whereby you had people going off to to leave their families while on uh, crusade and it would be the wives and children who couldn't own assets themselves and have property in their names that were reliant on the income of the of the crusaders estate and so that was the sort of how the embodiment of a trust the idea that somebody else was owning these assets uh, on their behalf i mean obviously moving forward one of the first written documents that concerned trust law was drawn up by henry the eighth and concerned tax revenues from land and how these were generated and held more broadly on behalf of others. So I think, as I say, I mean, trusts themselves have been around for a significant amount of time. And in terms of the modern development of trust, that really changed over the 20th century, where discretionary trusts, which give trustees the power to make decisions in areas around income and capital, how who gets paid what, uh, and which beneficiaries should get paid when really evolved and the idea of using discretionary trusts. Beneficiaries have no fixed right to income, merely the right to be considered as for payment. And the flexibility is, is important because people perhaps don't know how circumstances will develop in the future, how a beneficiary will develop, what their financial uh, situation will be like, what other calls there will be on their capital. So the idea that you could make a, a trust that had inbuilt flexibility became very popular. So that's sort of a whistle-stop, brief history, as it were, of yeah. the trust. And it is fascinating. And I, I think a, a couple of things to, to pick up on there. Firstly, th- there will always be people who will want to exploit loopholes and they're the ones that tend to get the headlines when it goes wrong and the bad press around it and the danger with reading those headlines and and looking into it is that you then consider the concept of trust as this sort of way that the rich will avoid paying tax 
But I think the key that you've mentioned there is that it it's something that's designed to help to retain some element of control, perhaps when either that asset is given up or that person or persons have passed away. And if I'm right in my sort of summary, uh, I may be oversimplifying it a little bit here, but a trust is a bit like a box and somebody can put something in that box for the benefit of other people. And the box is then looked after by the individuals that we know as trustees. And, that in itself as a, a way of helping to control the passing of wealth between generations, for example, can be a really useful tool. It, is that a fair, I know I've maybe oversimplified it, but is that a fair summary? It certainly is. That's a very good analogy to make, I think. And, you know, as a lawyer, you have tendencies of using legalistic terms, but actually if you strip it back to its basic principles, it's exactly what you're, you're seeking to achieve. If we take an example, and again, there is a, a language barrier, I think, in, in terms of terminology that, that each of us use in our, our work. So succession, in some respects, is talking about what happens to people's estates on their death or during their lifetime in preparation for death. When we're talking about succession in a family business, that might be quite early on in somebody's um, lifetime, it could be in their 50s or 60s when they're death isn't in until they're hopefully 80s 90s or beyond but when we're talking about succession and the use of trust have you got examples where people listening might be able to contextualize it more by hearing this is how somebody else has used this i think it's really good to draw out the fact that succession as you say is more than just about will planning because it's it's a process that can happen during lifetime in fact we often find that if it happens during lifetime, it's less likely to lead to conflict because people are more likely to understand the implication of what's involved and the person who's creating the arrangement, the settle law, is often around to, to justify their actions and oversee their own succession plan. And I think probably given where we are with the tax position in the UK, we tend to think about the use of trust more on death because that's where there are great there is greater scope uh, to plan with trusts but actually where it particularly in the context of the family businesses as we will touch upon there are real benefits for thinking about lifetime succession planning and the use of trust during lifetime so you know just to state restate the 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 point really the most well-known context of for which trusts are, are are employed are in the context of succession planning as we've alluded to and I think this can sort of play out in many different ways I mean the general rationale for using a trust is that people want to specify how their assets are used after their own death often people want their money to go to good causes that may be charities they may wish to protect minor beneficiaries those who aren't adult yet to be able to manage the money or even if they are adult maybe they're not responsible enough in the eyes of, of their parent or their of, of the the deceased so a will trust is a common way of making provision for these types of beneficiaries because you're not giving them the legal ownership to the assets that that lies with the trustees what you're giving them is the right to benefit at a certain point in the future and in a controlled way and the other way that we sort of see this uh, as well um, is in the context of, you know, in particularly in 
modern society where you have what you sort of commonly describe as blended families where you might have children from different marriages you might be on uh, a second marriage or even a third marriage which is not uncommon and you might use a trust to make sure that you make provision for your surviving spouse whether they are your second or or third spouse but also be able to achieve a balance between making provision for your spouse and also making ultimate provision for your children maybe from your first marriage so you might do that by giving your spouse um, an, an interest a, a life interest in your estate the ability to enjoy the income or the rent-free occupation of a property for the rest of their life but the control lies in the fact that upon their death your estate would then pass to your chosen beneficiaries and that could be your children from your first marriage so that's a very common scenario that we see in practice and also what i see in emerging as a very sort of a, a will of choice for many for many testators that's the person who's making a will is a will that leaves their estate on discretionary trust so i've already alluded to the the benefits of a discretionary trust and here you often find particularly of testators of a, uh, a certain age maybe you know our generation russ where we have young children our wealth hopefully is going in the right direction and it's growing we're not sure where ultimately we want the wealth to pass or at what age or what stage or what the wealth might look like in the future. So leaving your estate on a discretionary trust gives you absolute flexibility. So you hardwire the provisions of the uh, trust in the will and then have a separate letter of wishes addressed to your trustees saying, dear trustees, in the future, I would like this to happen to my estate. And that letter of wishes can be changed at any point in the future without you needing to go to the trouble of making a new will each time. So arguably, I'm doing myself out of a job, but it, it, in a sense, it, it provides greater flexibility, I think. And people are more drawn to the idea of being flexible if they can, rather than thinking, oh, I've got to make a will. I've got to specify what happens to 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 who and when. And, you know, along with the general sort of thoughts and ideas about making well, it just it adds a different an extra prohibition to prevent people from doing so. So if they know that they can be flexible, that often helps that process. Yeah. So I'd say, you know, succession planning is 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 key. And in, in a more discreet way, we see the use of trusts in the context of life insurance policies. So if you've taken out a life insurance policy maybe to cover a mortgage liability in the event of your death or to provide your surviving partner or children with a lump sum to enable them to continue um, in the life that they're accustomed to, or even if it's a death in service benefit from an employment, what you're wanting to do is ensure that those lump sums are outside of your taxable estate and you might consider writing them in trust. So you're ring fencing that pot of money outside of your taxable estate and yet the benefit is recognised through the trust deed. Hmm. So during lifetime, people set up trusts uh, for, the, for the purposes of education. Parents or grandparents even might allocate funds into a trust for the purpose of, of benefiting their children in their private education or at university. And those funds can, can develop and maybe the individuals can utilise tax breaks by being able to contribute certain sums of money into those trusts as they go along. So that's a sometimes and often a, a useful way of, of utilising a trust. Mm. And we see trusts in the context of home buying as well. 
the general ownership of property is a, tr- a trust of land. So people don't realise if they're co-owning property with another individual, that they're, they're holding the legal and equitable interest in the property for the benefit of themselves. But you often find that individuals who co-own property who may have differing contributions to the purchase price may well be co-owners of the land and on the legal title, the legal owners, but they want to reflect that beneficially they own the property in a, in a different way to reflect their contributions to that property. So say for argument's sake, individual A contributes 60% to the property and individual B contributes 40%, the remaining 40%, they would enter a declaration of trust to say, we, are, we own this property, but beneficially, we own it on a 60-40 split. And again, that's a, a, a recognised and regular use um, of a trust in daily life, really. So yeah. that's another one to bear in mind. Yeah, and I think that's a, a really important point. And, and this is slightly tongue-in-cheek, but the, there's that saying, I think, in, in London, that you're never more than six foot away from a rat or something. Uh, and I think when it comes to trusts, in our everyday lives, we're probably never too far away from a trust structure Anyway, as we say, so again, there's this misconception that it's an elaborate wealth reserved for the wealthy and the, the practical uses of it is that it just provides a structure that is able to be sustained beyond the life of the person that's put that thing into to trust in the first place. And I think that's Usually. a really important consideration to, to bear in mind is they are useful. There are restrictions, obviously, because if, if it was too good, then obviously everything would be owned in in trust but their uses are far reaching and they are they walk amongst us yeah no very much so and i think many people sort of miss that point because often the assets that are held in trust potentially for their own benefit are assets that they they don't take the active step to settle in trust if you think about a pension policy typically the policy would be administered by a trustee who will be holding the pension the pension funds for the benefit of of the, the the person who's contributing but because you're not actively using making that trust yourself you don't you don't see that as a, a trust that is relevant to you on a daily basis but as you say with the analogy of of rats uh, you could uh, draw that you know certainly make that observation yeah and another point that you made really well was was about the role that the trustees play and given how what we're talking about is kind of it's really important stuff we're talking about the preservation and use of family wealth in a way that the um, person the settler giving the money into trust wants to wants it to be utilized for in your view then how important is it to ensure firstly that you take detailed advice on this uh, we, we don't want everyone just running around and getting a trust document off the internet and, and setting some stuff up off the back of this um, episode but also in terms of choosing the trustees that are there to help fulfill the wishes the importance really is manifested in if you think about uh, a trust is more than just the the document that records who the parties are a trust re- relies and requires the conduct of the parties to adhere to their role. So if you think about the role of trustee and in a modern trust, um, the trustee is required to administer the trust, which includes controlling and overseeing the management of the trust assets solely in the interest of the beneficiaries. 
So the trustees need to enter into the arrangement with their eyes open as well. This is not simply a tick box exercise. And many recent trust cases have been around the idea that maybe there hasn't been a separation of ownership and control, which is required. So your settlor is giving away assets for the to be controlled by the, the trustees. And if the settlor doesn't truly give those assets away and devolve themselves of, of that control themselves, then arguably a trust hasn't been established. And that's clearly in the example of a, a situation where you've established a trust by appointing third party trustees. Now, that's not to say you can't declare an asset on trust yourself, of which case you as trustee would also be the settlor or as settlor, you'd be the trustee. They're interchangeable terms. But the moment you declare that asset on trust, you have a fiduciary duty to your beneficiary to ensure that you administer that trust in accordance with the terms of the trust and for the benefit of the beneficiaries, not yourself. And if there's any suggestion that you are, then you could call into question the integrity of the trust itself, which would defeat the object of, of, the, of the planning. Yeah. And it's also important to bear in mind that where you're dealing with trust, that where you're expecting the trustee to, and there could be significant value in the trust, the trustee also has to bear financial liability for its mismanagement of the trust assets. And as I say, the trustees have a fiduciary duty to act in the best interest of the beneficiaries. And if the trustees held not to take reasonable care in making a decision and it loses money for the trust, the trustee may be held personally liable. So this is not something that trustees should shy away from in terms of their responsibilities. I mean, there's no, there's no set rule as to who can be a trustee. It depends on the actual scenario you're envisaging. So it might well be that if you have a trust arising under a will, you might appoint your surviving spouse and your adult children as your trustees, because ultimately they will benefit from your estates. They have a vested interest to ensure that you know, the trust is administered correctly. Or else if there's any question of disharmony in, in the family, you might consider appointing a professional trustee. And that could be a law firm, could be a couple of partners in the law firm acting as trustee. The law firm could have its own trust corporation. So you appoint that trust corporation to act as trustee. And again, the context of your trust is also important to 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 consider. If you have a it's all worth drawing out the distinction with the UK trust, which is typically written under English law. And what we regard as offshore trusts, so they're trusts that are administered in accordance with the law of another trust-friendly jurisdiction. And they often have, they will be under the laws of those particular jurisdictions as well. And often in those situations, there may well be trust companies that could act professional fiduciaries as it were to act as trustee and there may be tax reasons to ensure that you make sure that a offshore trust fiduciary is acting as trustee rather than somebody who's potentially say UK resident that may bring unintended tax consequences to your trust so there is a whole new world to explore with regards to the use of offshore trust but the point being the trustee can either be an individual person right through to a a professional uh, trust organization and again, I think the the key here is if you're considering looking at trusts is to take advice and speak to somebody like yourself to understand the various options that are available at the at the outset 
understand how the trust may interact with other elements of estate or succession um, planning as well, which I, th I think we'll, we'll get into in, in a second. But the, the key, I think, here is making sure that you take advice to ensure that a trust is actually what the right outcome is. Yeah. And if it is, understanding how it would function, who needs to take on which responsibilities, having those discussions at outset so there aren't any shocks or surprises when you know, a trustee who's just been told to sign here um, finds themselves on the hook for some financial misdemeanours. Absolutely. Or simply isn't prepared to accept the role for whatever reason. Yeah. And in a sense, you can often, in the context, if we return to the, the idea of succession planning, if you, you often find that in that context, it's easy for somebody to, to write a will and they specify who they wish to act as their trustees and who the beneficiaries of those assets might be. But actually what you find is that unless that succession plan is communicated effectively, the trustees may not be the one, the people that are comfortable at taking on that role and the beneficiaries might not be the right people to be benefiting. So having open discussions with certainly your trustees and, and thinking about the beneficial class is really key to make sure that a trust works in practice. It's, mm. it's one thing to set it out on paper and think, oh, tick that box, I've made a succession plan, but actually in practice, will it work? And I think that's the really important point. And that's where our sort of contribution as, as professionals is important to make sure that people sign up to making trust for the right reasons. Yeah. And I think, again, it might be stating the obvious here, but uh, ensuring that it complements other elements to the succession plan and other legal documentations that might be in place. Can, can you just sort of fill in some gaps on, on that side of it in, in terms of its interaction with other documents and where perhaps there's some, some pitfalls to be avoided? Well, picking up on a point you also alluded to before, a trust might not be the right structure, structure for the, depending on the circumstances. So if we think about the UK in particular, trusts do exist. And of course, they've existed for centuries, as I've um already mentioned but actually the tax environment in the uk is such that making trusts has to be considered from with regard with with tax in mind really i think that's the important thing to bear in mind and because people are still craving the idea of having a trust-like structure you're finding that what's arisen if if a trust is prohibitive from a tax perspective in terms of lifetime planning people are turning to the use of companies to re to recreate what trusts do and using the shareholder director roles as equivalents to beneficiary and, and trustee so the 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 rise of the family investment companies become particularly sort of evident in the last five to ten years really as a consequence of the way that the uk treats trusts so having a trust in place is 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 one thing so if we just assume from the moment, this moment in time, the environment's right, we've got a trust in place. What are our trust assets? If we assume that there are shares in a private company, what else do we need to, to make sure that the trust will work in practice? So probably that feeds into the articles of association of the business, of the, of the company, the shareholder agreement, what happens in the events that there's reason to 
liquidate potentially the, a shareholding or in the event of, of the happening of a particular event, how does that fit in with, with the trust that we have or when does the trust take a, an interest? We've already alluded to the role of trustee, who should be the trustee in, in that context. And sort of more broadly, you may have, and I think we've already talked about this as well or alluded to it, where you have a trust in place, but you want to make sure that that trust works in practice. So the next generation need to understand what that trust represents and how do you how do you do that? You might epitomize that in a some sort of family charter document where you recognize why the wealth has been is being held in trust and to achieve buy-in really from the next generation to understand that that isn't just theirs to to have an interest in it's it's there for the for the for the wider benefit as identified in the family charter and as agreed across generations and that might be because the wealth originates from a particular business interest or the you know entrepreneurial spirit of the first generation and it's that spirit that they want the family wants to immortalize really and ensure that the wealth stays within the family in the future and as well as a sort of a charter you might well have other sort of governance related documents around the use or importance of prenups and postnups you know any beneficiary of the trust who enters into uh, a relationship may well be encouraged to have a prenup to protect the family assets so that's another important consideration. Issues around mental capacity and, and, and dealing with those situations or the importance or need for financial provision in the future. What about one of one of the beneficiaries might be wayward or have a, a dependency issue on drugs or or something else that has an impact on whether they should receive capital from the trust. So it's 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 part of a, I suppose you could you say it's a cog in a, a bigger wheel in terms of that sort of family governance piece mm-hmm. uh, and making sure that everything functions uh, correctly and again ensures that the trust survives for its intended purpose of of, of generational planning mm. and the additional benefit I guess and, and there's no guarantees with any of this but the additional benefit of planning and effective communication when these sorts of things are being considered and put in place is that the the potential for future conflict is perhaps reduced if everybody has an understanding of why something is being done um, not just how they operate not just the sort of the the legal and, and tax perspectives but also the intention and why why a trust is being used versus something something else. And having that documented and discussed and agreed is hugely valuable in, in as I say, there's no guarantees that, that it will avoid conflict, but it can minimise the risk a little bit there. Yeah, no, very much so. Excellent. And, and so when we're talking about the interaction with other documents this may be an extreme example but let's say somebody has a an old will in place that was set up five ten years ago and they have a shareholders agreement that was established in the last couple of years and now they're talking to you about a trust and how that can be established to help deal with let's say the shares in in that particular business if the will says i leave everything to my spouse and the shareholders agreement says the other shareholders should be able to buy the shares and then a trust is implemented that says I want it to be held in a discretionary trust for my children. How does the sort of order of action happen in in 
the circumstance of death? Does one override the other? Or is it just we need to look at all of this in the whole in order to make sure they don't contradict each other? The easy answer, I think, is 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 the latter. It's looking everything in the whole, but it's also you also need something in your trust from the outset for that to work. So if your trust contains shares in that company and they were settled into trust during the settler's lifetime, obviously whatever they say under their will will only be in respect of the assets that pass in their name at the time in accordance with the terms of the will. So if you have a trust in place that you set up in as we describe as, as like a pilot trust or something that's waiting in the wings, it's been set up with say no more than £10 sat in it on the understanding that it will receive assets into that trust at some point in the future, probably on the, the, the settlor's death. You then want to make sure that the will is, is diverting the assets into that trust at that point in time. And the shareholder agreement will determine whether those assets would be the shares, or as you say, whether there might be a sort of mechanism in place that ensures that rather than the shares passing into the trust, the shares are sold and 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 the proceeds of sale pass into the trust. So that's an example where if, if somebody were to come to me, that's looking at all three elements together to make sure that everything dovetails to ensure the right result. Because it's one thing to set up a trust, but actually what's in the trust and how does that affect the wider succession planning? Yeah, and I think the key there is is obviously taking advice and understanding the the implications. So if, if somebody's listening to this at the moment and is thinking, okay, I understand what a trust is and, and broadly how they function, but what I don't know is whether I'm at the right stage of either the business maturity or, or my own life to consider trust. In your view and experience, when should people start considering i guess we're not we're not here to just sell trust but in terms of understanding their estate planning um, and what their options are when's sort of the best time for them to look at that we often draw the analogy and i hate quoting it because it's it's a bit sort of cringeworthy but you never let the tax tail wag the dog mm-hmm. but often the reason why people start uh, estate planning is they're mindful of their own the value of their own estate and you know that can happen at any stage depending on the the wealth of the individual and how successful the business is but there will be a, a, a point where if if somebody's minded to think about passing on some wealth in the business to say the next generation they might consider uh, their succession planning earlier than and somebody who's quite content to retain the the value in their estate until until the day they die and you know that that's probably not going to be the right solution anyway but it's finding a happy medium to make sure that anybody who sets off down this road is doing so at the right time but there may be there may be issues with regards to you know choosing who the successor of that sort of business is in terms of the the value if we leave sort of control to one side for for one moment and then there may well be within you know within across a class of children themselves there may be those children who are showing an interest in a flair for the business and there may be those who have, have forged their career elsewhere and how do you create sort of how do you equalize things between between them with regards to ownership of the business and the business owner might 
the reluctance to make the non-interested child a shareholder of the business because along with that comes you know a number of shareholder rights so what you might do is settle their interest in a trust the trustees are the shareholders but ultimately the the beneficiaries will be those non-business minded children so they have an interest but at least the the shareholder rights remain with the trustees and then during the the lifetime of the business owner themselves they could well declare themselves as as trustee and and continue to to have the those powers as trustee so that in a sense shows a mechanism of a trust working quite effectively and i think more generally where you're looking at trying to achieve equality if you can't reach that decision during your lifetime or at this moment in time during your life and that's off-putting and as i said before in the context of will planning if you can't reach that decision you're probably just going to brush it under the carpet for a bit longer or, or put it in a too difficult pile if you realize actually you could settle your shareholding or business interest in a trust in very discretionary terms you don't have to make those final decisions just yet the trust can be useful as a as a mechanism to separate out ownership and control and also give you that ability in due course when you're ready to make maybe incremental plans or steps to to pass value on to the next generation so i think hopefully a trust should be used as a mechanism to to start the succession planning earlier, I suppose, rather than just thinking it's a, a cliff edge idea that once you've committed to it, you have to do a roots and branch handover of, 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 of value to the, to the next generation. It's, it's about putting in place and planting the seeds of a, a succession plan. I'm going to put my, my neck on the line here a little bit. I don't think there's any statistical correlation between people putting in place wills, trusts and the like and then immediately falling off their perch, which I think is a big fear when it comes to um, estate planning is I I can't possibly do that because then I could, I could die. It kind of gives me (laughs) the the two aren't linked. Uh, And I think that tempting fate. Yeah. The the key is, I I mean, none of us know how how long we're, we're going to be around, but I think the key is here is not seeing it as this is my final kind of this is how things have to be from now on and I'm not ready to make that decision yet. It can be the starting point of let's get things broadly aligned to how you want things to happen and then over time as life changes and as people and characters develop, it may be that the next generation are too young to understand whether they're going to be taking an active role within the business or not or what needs to happen on that side of it. But, but leaving everything until there's this perfect moment where there's absolute clarity on where everything should go. I, again, I don't think that exists in its own right. But starting that process, firstly, doesn't mean you're going to die. And secondly, doesn't mean that it's set in stone forever. I have to find talking to clients until they set off on that journey. They don't know what the true issues are that really are important to them so putting something in place now will inevitably lead to a whole new uh, wave of of thoughts and feelings which enables them to take that sort of next step down the path so i think in the in the from the outset it's about having the right structure in place to grow and flex with the with the individual as as their circumstances both professionally and personally evolve Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's either establishing a trust, 
you know, doing a, a review of, of, of the articles of the company, you know, looking at shareholder agreements, making sure that right share classes have been allocated, what the share rights are attached to, to, to differing shares, making sure that those with interests have wills in place that talk to each other. You know, it's a real holistic exercise. Yeah, and I, I think again from, from um, experience, there's there's often some unintended consequences of people dying without any of this planning in in place, and particularly where there's been, say, a lack of formal discussion around structure and ownership of shares. So, prime example is a husband and wife team who've got a fifty fifty split on their um, shareholding, but one spouse is the dominant spouse within that business and doesn't necessarily think that that means that everything is in fact 50-50. And so having these discussions around the planning and having that look at, well, how are things structured right now? What what would be the consequences of you dying now without any of this planning in place? Sometimes seeing that flow chart through of where things end up is enough to make people think, okay, we really need to, to start focusing on yep. that side. And I'm guessing that's something that, you come across yourself in in the work that you're doing i think that's the only way of focusing people into taking action is actually highlighting the scenarios where it hasn't gone right to put it sort of politely where you are dealing with conflict and crisis because the succession plan isn't what was intended so that's the only way of really getting people to sit up and engage with the process yeah. So if nothing else, if, if people are listening to this and take that one lesson away is looking at mm. what happens if if the worst were to happen yesterday, what, what would the implications be? And I think that's a very good starting point for looking at what options are available um, to them. And, you know, just to take it one step further, if you think about your letter of wishes where you're saying, you know, dear trustees, these are the assets you can, you know, you can make provision for who you would like the trustees, who the, the trustees should be, whether they are, you know, responsible individuals who understand the business and have got a relationship with the family or whether it's, a, a, in a sense, a, a collaborative bo- board of trustees who can look out for the, the interests of, of each party. And also, you know, pointing the trustees in the direction of other people who may provide an advisory role. It's the document, it has to be remembered, is is the the settlers alone or the testators if they're making a, a will it's their document it's not legally prescriptive it's whatever works in the personal scenario circumstances of, of that individual and yeah. their business yeah and i think that that's a, a real reassurance to people is that that you can stipulate your own wishes rather than having everything dictated to you by the, the sort of legal structure of things. So yeah. Matt, thank you very much for, for running us through what is a very complex topic, but, but breaking it down in such a way that makes it so understandable. If people want to get in touch and have uh, more of a discussion, how can they do that? They can reach me uh, on phone or by email. My contact details are, more than freely available so happy to have a chat or a initial discussion with anybody who's thinking of this conversation has sparked their interest fantastic and we'll put a link in the show notes to your your page on your website rather than brilliant your home phone number on there search search me uh, (laughs) through other means (laughs) but again thank you very much for your time and sharing your expertise uh, on this subject and uh, we'll speak again soon thanks very much russ 
Thanks for listening. I really do appreciate it. If you found the show helpful, please consider leaving a review on iTunes and remember to subscribe to our newsletter. If what I've covered in the show resonates with what you are facing in your own family business, I can help. I provide consultancy support to family businesses of all sizes, so please get in touch if you'd like to know more. Head over to fanbizpodcast.com forward slash work with Russ. Until next time, take care.